Blog Talk Radio. This is the body of Christ Church. And welcome to Repentance is the King. Overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, 
Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So one of the temptations that we went over last week that's powerful and prevalent in this world is that demon, that lust, and that temptation to give in to despair. And that's not that spirit is not sent from above. That spirit is not of the Lord. How do we know that? Because when you read the book of Galatians chapter 5, and we go into the fruit of the Spirit, one of the greatest of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. And also in the book of Nehemiah chapter 8, one of the important verses to remember is where it tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. So if the joy of the Lord is our strength, and joy is also a fruit of the Spirit, when we give into that sadness and that despair and that depression, and we refuse to come out of it, then we're, given, we're overtaken in a fall. Whether we want to understand it or realize it or not, we're overtaken in a fall. And that's the reason why it comes back and says that if we find a person that's overtaken in that spirit, then it's our job to restore them in the spirit of meekness. Why in the spirit of meekness? Because if you see some, how often do you see somebody that's suffering with that, where you just want to say, oh, well, the old would say back in the days, or they just need a good swift kick in the pants. Just tell them to get up and off that bed and stop crying. Snap out of it. Snap out of it. Go outside and go outside and and enjoy the air. Because in everybody else's mind, it's not a big deal. It's only a big deal for the people that's going through. Oh, some of my boss cursed me out today. Somebody like, get over it. You at least you got a job. Oh, I broke up with I broke up with my boyfriend. I broke up with my girlfriend. I got a a 42 on my science project. You don't know what it is. You know, in, in, in our mind, it could be the most trivial thing in the world, and oftentimes it is. And the reason why is because as the more we come to understand the scriptures and the commandments of the Lord, the less and less the problems and afflictions of this world seem to us. But for people that in the world, it's all-encompassing, it's all-powerful, they can't overcome it. But we're talking, what we've been dealing with Last week, I was going to continue to deal with this week, it's not so much what it does to people that's in the world who don't have the Lord Jesus Christ and don't understand this, but we're dealing with the people who do understand and who are still overcoming. That's the reason why it says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in the fall, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest thou also be tempted. Because the same way it happened to them, it could happen to you. And there's nobody here that's strong all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and never gets weak. Verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And when we're doing those things, we're fulfilling the law of Christ. When we bear each other's burdens, we're fulfilling the law, law of Christ. When we're dealing with somebody with that not just sympathy, but that empathy, trying to understand what it is that they're going through, trying to understand why they're in pain, trying to understand what is, what's going on in their mind, then we're fulfilling the law of Christ because we can go on that level, as Paul always said about condescending to people's level. When you're talking about condescending, it's not talking about what this world talks about condescension, I'm talking down to you, or I look at you like you're nothing or you're beneath me. What it means is that when Paul was speaking of condescending to people's level, it was the same way Jesus Christ taught us to condescend. 
taught us that there was nobody that was beneath us. There was nobody that was so low that they were somebody that you couldn't talk to, couldn't deal with, couldn't try to help. So that's the spirit that we have to learn, and that's the spirit we have to deal with, especially when you're looking at somebody who has an affliction that you don't understand. When you look at it, like like Kadar says, snap out of it. Or what Kadar says, why, toughen up. <laughs> that's Kadar. So you say that in the heart, toughen up. But we say it in jest, but there are some people who can't toughen up. Not on their own. They need help. And that's what this class is dealing with. So verse 2 again. Then he one another's burdens and self-fulfill the law of Christ. Right. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. So if we think that we're beyond that temptation, if we think that we're beyond that affliction, if we think that we can't be touched by it, then we're deceiving ourselves. Because all of us can find ourselves being the weak at any point in time. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. But every man shall bear his own burden. So that's just things to keep in mind as we're going through this. Thinking of your brother and your sister among us, knowing that everybody's going through it. Everybody goes through their struggles and afflictions and adversity. <laughs> but there are things that we bring upon ourselves without, without need. There are afflictions that we bring upon ourselves in our foolishness. There are afflictions that we bring upon ourselves in our lust. So there are a lot of things that we go through that we have complete and total power over. But the problem is that our lack of understanding and our lack of faith takes us to those dark places. So when you look at some of the things that we didn't touch last week, the different things, the different afflictions that people bring on themselves or the different things that lead people to depression, and the different things that lead them to the anxieties that they go through is because of a lack of understanding of the scriptures. One of the things that I wanted to touch on that last week that we didn't get a chance to touch on was guilt. Now, what are some of the things that put that spirit on people, especially in this faith? Anybody? When they sin, when they make a mistake, there's a lot of... Explain. Sometimes, <clears throat> when a person... Things they might have known better. Most times, you 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 catch your guilt when you do something and you kind of know better, okay? And and the person repents, they and they move on, but they really don't, and they carry the guilt and, and shame a lot of times with them, and that's a spirit that doesn't allow people to really move on and allow people to repent and beat themselves up and they carry that sin with them. And so what happens is. When you look at that example that Ayan brought up, we could think of a thousand million examples that we could bring up, but there are no examples as great as the ones we all have for ourselves. Because that example that Ayan just gave is something that every man, woman, and child in this church has either gone through or you will go through. And that's almost a promise. Because there's none of us that's walking perfect in the commandments and there's none of us that didn't have our falls. For some of us, our falls have been very public. And everybody in the whole church knew that you messed up. 
And like the scripture says, you will make yourself the mocking stock of your enemies when you give in to your lust and your temptations. For others of us, our falls might have been more private. It wasn't on front page news. It might just be between you and the most high. But it's something that you still carry with you. And if you allow Satan to get in your head and twist your mind about things that you supposedly moved on and repented of, you're going to fall. And that's why Ayan made a really, really good point. He says you move on, but you really don't. And that's what happens a lot of times with brothers and sisters in this congregation. There are sins that you commit, there are iniquities that you have done, and the repercussions of it may be long-lasting. You might have had problems in your relationship. That's your fault. You may have problems financially. That's your fault. You might have health issues right now that are things that are totally your fault about things you did to yourself. You might have disobeyed counsels pertaining to your finances, pertaining to your relationship, pertaining to your health, pertaining to all the above. And it came back to bite you in a major way. So a lot of us, if not all of us, know what it's like to be going through afflictions that you can look at and say there's only one person to blame, that's myself. And the more you point the finger in the mirror and the more you come to understand that it's all your fault, you got a choice. You can do one of two things. You can accept it, understand your role in it, understand how it was your fault, repent to the most high, move on, and grow from it. Or you can do the exact opposite, which is wallow in self-pity, wallow in doubt, and wallow in despair until it destroys you and consumes you and takes you right up out of this faith. So when you read in the book of Ecclesiasticus, chapter 4, verse 21, yes, Cliff. I'm I'm not clear on um, Galatians 6, uh, 3, and, uh, well, Four and four and five, I guess it is three, four and five, because it it says if a man think himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. It says, but let every man prove his own work. But it says, bear ye one another's burdens. So when we bear one another's burdens, we know that we're supposed to love one another like we like the Lord loved us, right? The answer to what you're looking for is in verse four. But let every man prove his own work. And then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another? So when you look at what it's going into, we're in this ministry. We're supposed to be helping each other out. We're supposed to be bearing each other's burden. We're supposed to be strengthening the weak. But at the same time, the scriptures come back and explain to us that nobody is going to get salvation for you. Nobody is going to walk you into the kingdom. Nobody's going to do it for you those things you have to do for yourself. So it's not enough that you can sit back and rejoice in somebody else's righteousness. You have to do your own work so that you can have rejoicing in yourself alone and not in somebody else because there's a lot of brothers and sisters that come to the doors of the church that are excellent cheerleaders. They can sit back and talk about, oh, this brother is a great help. This brother was a righteous brother. When I was down and out, they came and helped me and lift me up and all these things that you could talk about what somebody else did. But what are you doing? And the reason why that's important, even with the class we're going over today, is because the scriptures tell you, woe unto him that is alone when he falleth. He has not another to help him up. But when you understand that 
we're supposed to be dealing with the spirit of the Heavenly Father in Christ, and we're supposed to have the Holy Spirit within us, are we ever really alone? If you're in the faith of Christ, you're never really alone. And when you look at our forefathers who were in the faith, there were times when they were physically alone and had to come to the realization that the Most High was with them. Even the prophet Elijah, the most famous example on the mountain, telling the Most High, I'm the last one left, and I'm, the, I'm alone. Only for the Most High to explain to him that you're not alone. Because he had 7,000 Israel, all the people who had not bowed to need a ball and all the lips that have not kissed him. So when you look at what he's telling you in Galatians, that we're supposed to be about the faith so that we can have rejoicing in ourselves alone and not just in another. The same way you can glorify the fact that somebody else is in the faith, you're supposed to be able to look in the mirror and say, I'm also a servant of the Lord. And it's not about pride, and it's not about trying to glorify self. It's about understanding that you're here to be here, not just to watch other people. Well, your hand is up. And I think I am hand is up. Yes, the ball first. I was just going to say that, um, and I don't know if you have this part of your notes, but as far as on the, the topic you're dealing with now, with guilt, you know, it's, it's a very powerful demon, and it it will absolutely take you out if you don't apply the scriptures. And I think one of the um, best examples of that, to really see that and, uh, and know the detail in slow motion is what happened to Judas Iscariot, because just like those other Israelites who chose to let the, the robber go and, and crucify Christ and was just guilty as Jesus was, you see that when they came to uh, Peter preaching the gospel and they asked him, what are we going to do about this? Because they knew they were guilty and cutting their hearts. He told them to repent, and they chose that route. Whereas Judas, instead of repenting and turning to the Lord, whether he would forgive it or not, he chose to lean on his own understanding and see what I got. So you really have to Trust in the scriptures and not go into your own mind as far as how you deal with the guilt or any other side. Are you on? Two quick scriptures. Um, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. Going back to that same topic again about the shame and the guilt. Again, it's Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. And it says, For a just man falleth seven times, and rises up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. So again, for a just man falls seven times, and rises up again. So the difference between the righteous and the wicked is not who sins, it's not who falls, it's not who makes a mistake. The difference between the righteous and the wicked is that person that truly repents, that person that turns away from that wicked thing. Shame and guilt will have you, like what the brother said earlier, shame and guilt will have you on the ground wallowing. And shame and guilt will turn you into a wicked person if you allow it, because you won't be able to move on from that sin and move on from that transgression. Um, another quick scripture in um, Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 7, verse 20, it says, For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So going back to the same thing, we all make mistakes. We all sin. Sometimes we sin and we actually know better. 
But again, the difference between the righteous and the wicked is not who sings and not who falls, but about who rises up again, who gets up out of the dirt, who shakes the dust off of him and keeps moving. Exactly. So it's interesting when you look at what happens in in this faith with brothers. Um, we didn't even get the first scripture we pulled. So um, read it, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 21. And then I'll explain. For there is a shame that bringeth sin, and there is a shame which which is glory and grace. So just that one verse, and then we're going to go to Second Corinthians to really go into what that means. It says, For there is a shame that bringeth sin, and there is a shame which is glory and grace. So like the brother Ayan was bringing out, there are some people who let that shame destroy them. And that's the sin. There's a shame that bringeth sin, and that sin is when you give up. That sin is when you fall into that despair. That sin is when you bury your talents because you feel like you don't belong. Now that happens, and it's really strange what happens sometimes in this faith. Sometimes you see people come through the doors of the church, and the demons that haunt them are the sins that they committed in the world. Some people in the world, and you know, it's really all of us. It just, like, depends on how we deal with it when we come into repentance. Because we, we're really good for comparing one sin to another and things like that. There are people that came into this church and are in this church that may have been all type of sexual deviants, adulterers, whoremongers, homosexuals, the entire gambit. And some people, when they come into this faith, they can't get over what they were in the world. Some people were injurious. Some people were murderers. And when they come into this faith, there are people who have a hard time getting over what they were in the world. And those demons continue to fight them and haunt them and to destroy them so that they cannot understand that they were meant to be servants of Christ. Some people, most people that are in the faith, are haunted by things that they've done after learning this faith. Because it's easy to sit back, or it's easier rather, to sit back and say, you know what, I did those things like you brought out last week, Kadar, ignorantly in unbelief. Like Paul explained, yeah, I betrayed the Lord, but I did it ignorantly in unbelief. But what can you say when you're in this faith and you're doing these same wicked, stupid things and bringing pain to yourself, your family, your little ones, your household, bringing shame to yourself, and then turn around saying, how do I put myself back together as a servant of the Lord again? It's not as easy. And that that was one of the fundamental differences between Judas and the other people. They didn't believe. Judas believed he was right there with them. So to prove that, or to prove the whole point of how we're supposed to deal with that, let's go to the book of Second Corinthians chapter 7. And this is really going to explain what that shame that bringeth sin is and the shame that is glory and grace. Because some let that shame overpower them and destroy them to the point where they can't even be in this faith anymore. And others turn it into a glory. So we're going to be, go to the book of Second Corinthians chapter 7. And start at verse 8. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. But though I made you sign with the letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle has made you sorry, though it were but for a season. So when Paul was writing the letters, these epistles to the churches, some of those letters were scathing. He was really, really telling the churches what they were doing wrong, bringing out the different sins that were there, bringing out the different transgressions that people were committing. And what he said in verse 8, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, meaning that I wrote it to, to make you sorry. He says, though I did repent, for I perceived that the same epistle had made you sorry, though it were but for a season. So he's going to explain why he was glad that he wrote the letter, and he doesn't repent for writing it, but he's explaining, I want you to be sorry, but this is how you're supposed to be sorry. I don't want you to sorrow to despair. I want you to sorrow to repentance. And that's the whole theme that he's going to explain. Verse 9. Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. And that's the glory. He said, I'm, not, I'm rejoicing, not that I made you sorry. I'm rejoicing because when you were made to come face to face with your sins, when I brought you through, when I wrote the letters showing you the things that you were doing wrong, you sorrowed. You were sorry. You were upset. But you didn't give in to despair. What did you do? You repented. Read. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. And see, that's how we're even supposed to correct, with the correction and exhortation at the same time. Because there are those in this world who don't understand that. There are those in the faith that don't understand that. There are those in this gospel that don't understand. There are those in this church that do not understand that. And when you go to correct people, you go to correct them with the intention to destroy them. And that is not the spirit of Christ. Because the scriptures tell you even in Matthew 18, if you're going to correct your brother, the goal was to do what? Restore. So that for you to be one-on-one oh, one and gain your brother. Regain your brother. And when you read Galatians 6 and 1, what was the goal? To restore this person. So every single time you look at it done in a righteous way, it was never done to destroy anybody. It was never done to break somebody's spirit. It was always done to regain your brother or restore somebody that was lost. That was always the goal. And if your goal was to do anything other than that, then you're not dealing in the spirit of Christ, which is why Paul came back and said, I made you sorry, and I don't repent about that, because that sorrow that you have brought you to repentance. Verse um, 9 again. Now I rejoice that ye were made sorry. Now read that again. Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us and nothing. So it says, but you received damage by us and nothing meaning that it wasn't meant to destroy anybody. It wasn't meant to damage you. But you have people that have been in this church that have been damaged, where they may have committed sin and iniquity, and they had so-called elders tell them how stupid they were, tell them how they never grew, you've never grown, you're not on a level that you were supposed to be, how long you've been here, all of that. When in truth, 
the scriptures tell them you can admonish them, you can correct them. If they deserve it, you can even correct them harshly. But the end result is that you're always trying to bring them back to the fold, not to destroy their faith. And another aspect of that same verse is for, for you were made sorry after a godly manner. So the other aspect of it is, like we read Proverbs 27 and 5, open rebuke is better than secret love. Because if they had seen the evil that they were doing and sat back and did nothing, then what would that be? That would still be them doing damage to them in, in, in something. Exactly. So you can't sit back. That's not an option for us to see someone dealing in that kind of spirit and we don't say anything to them or deal with them or correct them or bring that admonishment and exhortation like the scriptures say, that would be equally as damning as a person that's on the flip side trying to tear somebody apart with them. Both of you are destroying them, but it's just in another, another manner. Exactly. Verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So explain the difference between the two, Anthony. Well, there's a, there's a godly soul that, that works with him, and so we're supposed to feel sorry for the things that we've done to the point where we want to repent to the most high. And then there's another type of soul, uh, oh, the soul of the world that works with us. So that, that soul of the world is going to that guilt that we feel that we can't come back from, from uh, certain sins to the point where so we've seen that happen, where it'd be people that got caught in scandals, if you will, that's what this life is. They got caught in sins, and when it came out before the congregation, they left. And it wasn't, and truth be told, many times it wasn't things that they would have to have gone for. It wasn't something like somebody was saying, oh, you've got to go get the hell out or anything like that. It was a matter of, listen, you broke the commandments. This is what you've done. And their whole thing was they never came back. They never dealt anymore. They just went into obscurity, went into hiding, almost like almost like we were the police or something. We're not. And so when you look at that, that sorrow of the world, that's worldly sorrow. Because that's that spirit is not of the Lord. That spirit is not of the Lord when it says, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Where you see somebody get corrected, and the next thing you know, they out the door. You see somebody get corrected, and somebody tells them, listen, this is what you need to do to better yourself. This is what you need to do according to the scriptures. And their answer is, I'm out. And not because they're angry at you, not because they, got, they hate you, but because now their spirit is so broken, they don't want to deal no more. But understand, that's still another form of pride, too, because you're still leaning on your own understanding. The Scriptures tell you, repent and move on. But because you're dealing with pride, you know better than the Most High. The Most High is telling you to repent and move on, but you know, no, no, that I'm too wicked. I'm not supposed to be here. I don't know why I keep making mistakes. I don't know why I can't get over this. I don't know why I'm still doing the same things I've been doing since I came in the door. I don't know why I haven't grown. I don't know why I'm not better than I am. But that's Satan. That's Satan. And the end result is that sorrow of the world 
that worketh death. Because when you give into that depression, that despair, that hopelessness, and you separate yourself from the Most High Christ and the congregation that you were blessed to have, you're going to convince yourself that you can't come back. How many times we got those calls? People crying, begging us that they can come back. And it's, we're looking at it like some people, they can't come back because they've done such irreparable harm to themselves. But then there's other times when you deal with people like, listen, you left. Nothing ever happened to you. You decided that this is not what you wanted to be, decided this is not what you wanted to do. Nobody made that choice for you. You made that choice for yourself. Because you were overtaken in a fault, you got caught up, and rather than letting that reproof and instruction bring you back to Christ, you let reproof and instruction take you out. You let Satan take you out, truthfully, because the instruction of Christ didn't take you out the door. You took yourself out. Verse 10 again. For godly sorrow workers were precious to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Verse 11. For behold, there is no same thing that ye sorrowed after a godly part, what carefulness it wrought to you. So what is the carefulness? You consider what you did. So it says, for behold, this self-same thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. So what is that carefulness? Remembering the words of the Most High, keeping the commandments. Yeah, that's it too. Anthony? Um, Kapar? It's going into your repentance and diligence and appliance. So when you talk about that carefulness, Give me, give me any sin or lust that a person is caught up in, or that you yourself might have been caught up in, in the world. So now, explain to me how a person could give into that spirit of greed. Well, um, they they obtain one thing and they like it and they want more of it. And so, give me a real example. Oh, like a real example? I'm not talking about your example, but give me something more than this. Oh, well, greed, greed is when you. When you, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I was trying to say. Covetous. When you desire something to the point that you allow yourself to break the commandment. So give me an example of that. So if you try to, let's say, buy a house or whatever, and you know you don't have enough money to buy the house that you want, well, if you know, hey, there's an opportunity for you to get overtime on a job if you work on the Lord's Sabbath day. And now because you're covetous, because you're agreed in your heart, that that becomes a whole that becomes a a, a, a uh, conflict for you because well I can you know I can break the Lord's commandments and I can get this thing that I want so a lot of times that that happens like that too as well so these are so you bring out this example so now let's say the most side did not bless your enterprise and things fall apart as sometimes they do. And you turn around and say, I'm examining myself to see why this is happening. And you go through your offenses to the most high. What would the carefulness be? That you look, make sure that you, that doesn't happen to you again. You, 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 you tread lightly, I would say. So when you talk about that carefulness, whatever the sin is, whether it be you get caught up in some wickedness with a woman, whether you get caught into some wickedness with money, whether you get caught into some wickedness where 
whether you get caught up because when you look at I'll give you some examples for things that come up into this church a lot. Here it is, there might be a brother and a brother or a sister and a sister who for some reason whatsoever, whether it be they just not applying, well, we know what it is, they not, one or the other is not applying the commandments and they find themselves constantly at odds with each other, constantly having words with each other, and to the point where they got hatred and reverence for each other. That's a sin. And that's not a light sin, that's a heavy sin. That's a heavy sin. So now, your grudging, your animosity, and your hatred for each other grows so much till it becomes public knowledge and the church knows about it. Now you openly rebuke. Everybody knows your secret. The gig is up. So now when you repent to each other and repent to the Most High, what is the carefulness? The carefulness is the fact that now you make sure that in all your dealings, you're applying the fruit of the Spirit. In all your dealings, you're being courteous. In all your dealings, you're trying to understand how you got to that point in the first place. And that's that carefulness coming back. So it's showing you that part of that true repentance, part of that godly sorrow, part of that godly sorrow is that you're going to go back and be careful to make sure that it don't happen again. For people that find themselves, a woman caught up in a situation where she's tempted to deal with a man that's not in the faith, or a man that's tempted to deal with a woman that's not in the faith, then it comes to light and you're sitting there like, well, dang, I almost find myself in fornication. That happens all the time. So what is the carefulness? The carefulness is you don't do the stupidness that you did the first time to catch yourself there. Because some people learn, some people don't learn. Some people still find themselves up in a woman's house, drinking wine, listening to love songs, cuddled up in their arms, talking about they teaching the Bible. That's foolishness, and that does not show the carefulness that you're supposed to have learned from the commandments. So when the scriptures are coming back and showing us about that carefulness, it's letting you know that that godly sorrow brings us to repentance instead of bringing us to despair. Because you have people that come back like, oh, I don't know how that happened. I was so stupid. And they go and do the same thing. That's not godly sorrow or the person that refuses to take counsel on any endeavor or any enterprise, business, ventures, jobs, houses, cars, everything is blown up in their face one after the other, and they continue to do exactly the same thing. That's not godly sorrow that leads to repentance. So the carefulness is that you don't continue along that same destructive path that got you where you were. So verse 11 again. Well, behold, um, 2 Corinthians Chapter 7, verse 11. For behold, the self-same thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness is wrought in you? What carefulness is wrought in you? Read. Yea, what clearing of yourselves? Yea, what clearing of yourselves? What is the clearing? What is the clearing? You got it off your mind and now you're dealing with it? It's more than just getting it off your mind. Well, full repentance, like we just mentioned, and now we're considering everything that we've done, and you don't have to carry that weight. So now you're getting closer to the answer. It's 
off your conscience, mm-hmm. the clearing of yourself. If somebody says, oh, well, my conscience is clear concerning that, what does it mean? It means you're not holding, like you said, you're not holding that guilt over your own head anymore. You're able to forgive yourself. Like you said, Ayan, you're not haunted by it. So you can look back and say, yeah, that was wrong when I did that. But the reason why it's not haunting you, the reason why it's not hanging over your head, the reason why you can move on is because you have the clearing. The clearing of yourself came from repentance. You were sorry for it. Not only were you sorry about it, you didn't do it again. And because you didn't do it again, you look back and say, you know what? I've learned from it. I've grown from it. I've moved on from it, as opposed to saying, I'm still doing the same thing. I'm still that same wicked, evil person. I haven't grown. That's when you start falling back into that despair, that hopelessness, and that depression when Satan comes back and he's looking at you and saying, listen, you just fooled yourself. Look at you. You ain't been changed. You're still the same person. You're still that same wicked man. You're still that same wicked woman. You don't belong here. You don't belong around brothers and sisters that are in the faith. You don't belong here. Because everybody around you is doing the commandments. Why can't you? Why can't you do the faith? Why can't you do what they're doing? Because you don't belong here. You're not one of them. You're not part of the body of Christ. You just think you're part of the body. That's what Satan gets in your head, and he will wipe you out. Because once you give into that guilt and despair, you're already gone. Because that faith, that hope, the things you're supposed to learn through Jesus Christ, you can't access that power anymore. So you don't have you don't have the carefulness. You don't have the clearing of yourselves. It says, read on, Roger. With uh, verse, so verse so 11, start, 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 this is, it goes to all of them. It's that fierce, it's that fierce anger and hatred. If you have indignation for something, you loathe it, you detest it. So why does it say that that is going to bring in us that indignation? Yea, what indignation it brings in you? What is that indignation? Hatred of the thing that caused you to be in that position. Exactly. You hate the sin. You hate it now. Because the thing is, all of us fall into the sins that are ours. All of us fall into sin the same way it tells us in the book of James. Then when then when lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it's finished, bringeth forth death. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. If you're enticed by something, that means that it's appealing to you. It's something that pleases you. It's something that attracts you and draws you. If you're enticed by a woman, that's because it's appealing to you. You see it, you can't resist it. You want to go after it. You want it. You want to experience it. You want to taste it. But that's the whole thing about repentance is that after you get stung and you feel that bitterness of death, the Scripture says you have a choice. That godly sorrow is going to bring you to repentance because now you get the carefulness, 
I'm not going to put myself in that situation again. Then you get the clearing. My conscience is going to be clear because I know that I've moved on to the things that I'm doing. Then you're going to have indignation. You're going to look back like, how could I have done that? That was the stupidest thing I ever did in my life. I almost lost my family. I almost lost my salvation. I almost lost my life. You're going to, be, you're going to hate that. And that's why when those situations come up again, is it going to be enticing and alluring anymore? No, because you're going to be mad. You're going to be angry. So it says, yea, what indignation, read. What indignation, yea, what fear. Yea, what fear. What fear. So when those situations come up again, Somebody's sitting there talking about, oh, why don't you come over to my house and teach the Bible? Why don't you come to class? <laughs> Instead of sitting there like, hmm, that sounds like an invitation, you're going to be shaking and trembling in your boots because you know that you're not going to put yourself in no position to fall. If something comes up and you're about to take enterprise, like the Scripture says, let counsel go before every enterprise, you're going to have that fear. And that fear is going to turn you around and say, you know what? I'm going to do what the scripture says because there may be something that I'm missing. There may be something I don't see. The scripture tells me not to be confident in a plain way. So all of those things are going to come back around all the time. Read. What comes after the fear? Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what vehement desire. Read. Yea, what zeal. So that vehement desire and that zeal is one and the same. Because you want to be avenged now. You have a zeal to prove yourself. And you're not proving yourself just to the to the, the congregation or the church. You want to prove yourself to the most high. The same way if you have a child that did something that you know that you disappointed your parents. You got caught stealing. They said you like you in a you come from a nice house. You get everything you want. How could you embarrass me that way, right in front of all my friends and everything? I can't. And you sitting there, you know that you just debased yourself in front of everybody. Your name is Mud. Wouldn't you do anything to restore yourself? Wouldn't you have that zeal to say, you know what, I want to get my good name back? Wouldn't you? Yeah. So it's the same way with the Most High. That vehement desire and that zeal is that you want the Most High to look at you like a son or a daughter again. And, of course, that's why Paul is writing the letter letting you know that you have two choices. You can give in to the sorrow of the world, which is going to lead you down that path of depression and death, where you somebody say, that's what, your name is Mud. You might as well not even be here. And Satan is playing in your mind, destroying you. Or you could say, you know what? Now I'm going to have that zeal and that vehement desire. I'm going to prove myself to the Most High. I'm going to prove myself to Christ. I'm going to prove that I'm a servant. Yes, bro. Um, as we going through this, in my mind, I'm thinking that, if you don't have these things and if you don't feel this way after you sin, 
then you really don't have the spirit of repentance. No. You do not. So, like, you know, we are like brothers bringing out, we all make mistakes and everything. But, man, if you don't see this in yourself, these things in verse 11, you, you are not repentant. You're not. And so you look at that, that vehement desire, that zeal, that fear, that clearing, all those things are important, like you brought out. Those are things that are part of repentance. It must be there. And after that zeal and vehement desire, what comes? What revenge? What revenge? You want to be avenged of it. Because it's almost like a fight. It is a fight. If you went up against a lust, and that lust came up against you and KO'd you in the middle of the ring, in front of a million people to see. You watch it happen in, fight, in boxing all the time. What happens? Somebody comes in the ring, they knock you out. And not just a, a not just a pretty knockout, if there is such a thing. You went through the ropes. Your behind was hanging in the air. Your mouthpiece fell out. You didn't know where you were. They had to pick you up off the floor. That's what Satan does for us. We get knocked out by our sins. But the scriptures came back and says, when you repent, you want revenge. And what is that revenge? That revenge is that when it comes up again, it's the rematch. And when the rematch comes, you sit back and say, guess what? This knocked me out before. It knocked me out before. My lust knocked me out before. My pride, my greed, my arrogance knocked me out. So now that it came back again, I'm knocking it out. I'm not letting it have another victory over me. And that's what the scriptures are talking about, that sorrow that brings us to repentance, rather than the sorrow of the world that brings death. So read that again. Yea, what revenge, in all things ye have approved yourself to be clear in this matter. In all things... You have approved yourself to be clear in this matter. So what that means to be clear in this matter, that means that the same way if you were in a courtroom and somebody says, oh, you're clear of your charges, meaning that you're not guilty anymore. You're not guilty anymore. But that's only if you go through the things that's written here. So the script, like we went over last week, when we went over last week about that depression and that anxiety and that hopelessness and that despair that people give into that leads them to this depression that they can't come out of and you wallowing in self-pity and self-misery and you can't get up off your behind and do nothing, what the scripture is showing you is that we have that choice always. And if we find ourselves overcome in sin, and Satan gets in our mind and convinces us that we don't belong here, that's on you who you're going to listen to. You can listen to Satan or you can listen to the Scriptures. And the Scriptures tell us that there's a way that we can prove ourselves to be clear in this matter. Read that 11 verse again. The whole 11. For behold, this shall say things, that ye saw after a godly sort, what carefulness is wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what 
vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things, you have approved yourself to be clear in this matter. So now, once again, we have the choice. We have the choice whether we're going to deal with the sorrow that brings us to repentance or the sorrow that's after the godly manner. I mean, the sorrow that brings us to repentance or the sorrow that brings us to death. And it's not saying it's not going to be painful. It's not saying that you won't shed tears. It's not saying that you won't be brought low. Because you look at our forefathers, did they saw Were they brought low? Yeah, they were brought low. David cried and mourned and begged the Most High to spare the life of that child. The Most High put that child to death. Despite his cries and his pleas. You look at Saul, he cried. Judas cried. All these people cried, but some of them had already crossed over and gone too far to find their way back. For Saul and for Judas, it was too late. They were rejected. For people like David, he found his way back to the Lord and became that lesson of repentance for all generations. Paul became Saul. Or Saul became Paul, rather. Uh, one thing that we have to remember about David is that, yeah, the Lord had mercy on him. He found his way back to repentance. But because of that deed, he also had to carry that curse with him in his household, too. And that's where we're going now. We're going to the book of Hebrews 12. Because the point is this. Many of us, the reason why we can't overcome the errors that we made, and many of us, the reason why we can't overcome the mistakes and sins that we've made, and many of us, the reason why we're overcoming that burden of guilt and despair, is because after we sin comes what? Judgment. Judgment. Now there comes the chastening of the Lord. And the chastening of the Lord do not feel pretty. So if you're being chastised by the Lord, and you're feeling those stripes, and those whoops and those marks on your back, and you feel yourself getting beat down, it's easy for Satan to come in and tell you what? That you've been rejected. That the Lord's not dealing with you no more. That the Lord hates you. That he has no more use for you. That he has no more need for you. That you fell. But what do the scriptures say about the chastening of the Lord? Let's find out. Hebrews chapter 12. And let's jump right down to verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation, which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise, now th- despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So anybody explain that. Verse 5, um, and ye have <clears throat> forgotten the ex- exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. So so when, one other thing, mm-hmm. when you look at this, it says, and ye have forgotten the what? Exhortation. What does exhortation mean? The warning, well, admonition. And what? warning. So exhortation. Oh, it's the. Uh, you said it the first time. It's the. Uh, I mean, right out of my mind. It's the building, the building up, up, the encouragement. Don't forget that, because the scripture says you have forgotten the exhortation. So what you're reading is exhortation. It's supposed to encourage you. 
not to take away your spirit, it's supposed to give you your spirit back. So now read that again, Cliff. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. So when it's when it's when I uh, read this scripture and I read it often, it we have to look at ourselves as the children of the Most High, and those of us that are parents, we can we are intimately familiar with how the behavior of children are. So, you know, we try to build our children up often, like the Most High does by His Word through His Son Jesus. And it says, "Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord," um, because we know that the Lord, just like a parent would, when you do something wrong or against um, the commandment or the will of the Most High, you're going to get that chastening. You're going to get that that reproof and that rebuke. Mm-hmm. Just the same way that just you would do your children. We're not supposed to despise that. We're supposed to actually take that cheerfully and know that because he because he's chastening you, he loves you. That that's really what that's going into. So we're not supposed to despise that. My son despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. So we're supposed to cheerfully receive that because the other part of going into that is it's not judgment. He didn't take you out of this thing. He's chastening you and saying, all right, check yourself, correct this. I'm letting you know right now. And when you look at it, it is judgment, but the judgment was not for your destruction. So it says, nor faint when thou art rebuked of them. Nor faint when thou art rebuked of them. Take that, Kabbalah. Are you at the end Just one. We can get it after that. It says, um, no faint when you are rebuked of them. <clears throat> it goes right back into uh, Ecclesiastes, the second chapter about when the Most High came to that lower state, that you endure it cheerfully, that you understand that the Most High is doing it because he loves you, and that is not to break you down. And you know, basically, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Dude. If you get through this and receive what the Most High is trying to teach you, you want to be that much better at the end. So don't give up. Why why are you going through it? Endure it until the end. Have patience and you'll see the result what the result will be and it'll be positive. So you look at that whole thing about not fainting at the rebuke of the Lord, that's on every level. You look at our forefathers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in a furnace on fire and they praised the Lord and said, You know what? All the things the Lord did to this nation, you did in true judgment and your ways are just. That's powerful. And Job, after he lost his children, lost his cattle, lost his houses, lost his entire wealth, what did he say? And his health. And his health. He said, are we to accept the good from the Lord and not the evil also? also? So you look, they had a higher level of understanding. But I want to read one thing, and then let's turn it over to you, Kadar. And it's just one verse in the book of Lamentations, one of my favorite books ever. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 39. It's one verse, and it's one question, but it's a powerful, powerful, powerful question. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 39. Wherefore doth a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? Wow. I'll read it again. Because wherefore just means why. Wherefore does a living man complain? A man for the punishment of his own sins. So if you don't.